0: Hello and welcome to the Voices of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Gill, and I appreciate it uh, you checking us out. If this is your first time here, I want to welcome you and say thank you for giving us a try. If you are a repeat listener, I thank you for continuing to support what we're doing. Uh, a little bit about who we are. We are the Voices of Freedom. We are a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience. The American Wartime Experience is here to honor, educate, and inspire future generations. And here at the Voices of Freedom, how we do that is by recording and preserving the wartime oral histories of Of Americans, uh, whether they be in uh, the veterans in who served in the military, or whether they be civilians, we are here to preserve their stories. The only criteria is you have to have a connection to a wartime event. So, if you are an American who did not serve in the military, but perhaps you were a first responder on September 11th, or you are a Rosie the Riveter. Or maybe you were a witness to a wartime event. We uh, interviewed a young lady who was a witness to the Pearl Harbor attacks. Uh, she was nine years old. Her father was in the military. And she was a witness to that day. We have also interviewed witnesses to the attacks in, uh, in uh, New York on September 11th. We've interviewed first responders from that day. So if you have a, a connection to a wartime event, you have a story to tell, uh, we'd like to hear it. We'd like to preserve that story. What do we do with those stories? Well, we preserve them for future generations. We preserve them for the family members of the veterans and of the Americans who were witnesses to the event. Uh, Those interviews uh, eventually will go on our website. We have approximately 450-500 interviews on our website currently. Uh, We also put interviews on Vimeo, uh, and we put interviews on YouTube and you can watch the full-length interview uh, on any of those platforms. And we also take selected interviews and we put them right here on our podcast where you can hear the audio as you're going to work or working in the, in the house or in the yard. Uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can check these out. If you'd like to learn more about what we're doing, if you want to watch some of our interviews, if you want to check out our tank collection, that's right, we have a tank collection at the museum. Uh, Or if you just like to learn more about how you can support what we're doing. Uh, What we're doing is very important work. Uh, It's very important to preserve these stories because once the veteran is gone, uh, their story goes with them, obviously. And it's it's a crying shame that a lot of veterans just don't, they don't ever either have an opportunity to share their story or they don't think that they did anything that's worth sharing. So... Um, we'd like to hear their story, and we, th- we think it's very important that their story gets preserved, especially for, for the family members. Uh, so if you'd like to learn how you can support us, again, you can go to our website at www.americansinwartime.org. Okay, enough of that. Let's talk about uh, today's interview. Today's interview was with Army veteran Kenneth Shiro, and he is a veteran of the operation uh, known as Operation Restore Hope. And that was the humanitarian mission in Somalia that began in late 1992 uh, through about the first half of 1993. If you're familiar with the movie Black Hawk Down and that whole incident, that occurred during Operation Restore Hope. Um, Kenneth was on the ground uh, in, in uh, Somalia beginning in early of 1993. His story is uh, not, not unlike a lot of Americans uh, of his day and his age. When he graduated high school in the late 80s, he really didn't have a direction uh, that he wanted to go with his life, but he did know that he wanted to serve. Um, So he chose to uh, enter the service uh, in 1989, September of 1989, and he chose the United States Army. Um, And the reason he chose the Army is he said it was the largest military branch with the most diverse career path and opportunities. So, in other words, there was a lot of opportunities for him to do uh, different things in in the military that would benefit him, uh, when he got out of the military, he'd be able to take the skills uh, that he learned in the uh, military and use them towards a career. So uh, right, out of, uh, right after uh, basic training, uh, he went to Fort Gordon in Georgia where he completed his communi- communications school. So that's what he would be. Uh, he would be a, a communications troop uh, in the Army. Uh, after his time in Germany, he would be deployed in January of 1993 to Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, where he was with the 546 personnel group, uh, and he would be handling all the communications for the company, for their vehicles, uh, and their land-based assets. Um, Ken talks about his first impressions when he got to Somalia. He said it was a very surreal experience because, you know, they were told, hey, you're going over there, uh to support the humanitarian mission, so you're going to be helping out with delivering food and water and medical supplies to the indigenous people in Somalia. Uh, but he says as soon as they got off the plane, they were started taking sniper fire. So uh, they were immediately issued their flak vests and their initial issue of ammunition. Uh, and Ken says uh, along with his fellow soldiers, they were all sitting on the ground sweating and loading their magazines. And he was thinking to himself, what is going on here? Um... This is not exactly what I expected, um, and he she, that that uh, thought was uh, shared by many of his uh, many of his fellow soldiers. Um, so so Ken was tasked uh, with establishing communications for the company's sleep work areas and vehicles, uh, and he was there along with one other communications troop, and that was his NCO. They were the only two uh, communication troops on the ground in Somalia at that time. Um, he talks about a couple of very harrowing incidents that he was involved in, incidents that would shape his life, Um, and uh, he has a very unique perspective, very interesting story that he tells about his time in Somalia. So uh, without me rambling on any further, uh, you want to hear what happened from the person who was actually there, and that's Kenneth Shiro. So without further ado, I give you our interview with Kenneth Shiro, and uh, before I do, I want to just thank him for his service to his country, and I want to thank all the veterans out there who are listening. Uh, uh, thank you for your service. Um, it goes sometimes as a cliche uh, when people say this, hey, thank you for your service. Uh, but it is something that is heartfelt when we say it, uh, and, and most people most people are genuine when they say it. So, again, if you, if you served your country in any way, whether it be in wartime or in peacetime, I want to thank you for your service.
1: My name is Dennis Gill with the Americans of Wartime. Today's date is 25 September 2021. I am interviewing Kenneth Shiro, and we are here at the 2021 Open House out of the Tank Farm. So welcome, sir. Appreciate you sitting down and talking to us. Thank you. Um, If you could tell us just a little bit about yourself. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? That kind of thing.
2: I was born in Washington, D.C., and I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, and uh, stayed in the Washington area until I joined the military in the Army, and then... uh, like a fool, came back to this area. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. You have any other uh, members of your family that are military?
2: My grandfather. He was in World War II, which is what brings me here today. Right. Um, he was a radar operator in an M8 armored car, which is what I'm highlighting out here. Right. And giving tours, doing
1: reenactments and things. Absolutely. Of types of- absolutely. Um, why did you join the service, and why did you cho- choose the army?
2: I uh, joined the service because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and uh went into the service in 1989, and uh, I picked the army because I figured that was the most generic, the largest service, and also my grandfather was in the army, and I thought, probably got the best benefits of the largest service, right. and uh, you can probably do everything in the army, you know, you can go on a boat, you can go on a plane, you can do anything in the army, right, so that was the
1: reason for that. <clears throat> What year of service? Uh, September 21st, 1989. Okay. Did you have any idea of the direction you wanted to go in your career, what you wanted to do?
2: My first thought was I wanted to drive a tank and, and crush things, and I thought that would be a lot of fun. But then I came back down to earth and to reality, and I thought, maybe I should get into communications, you know, that would be something that can translate into civilian life. Got a red light.
1: Okay. Um, and where did you enter training?
2: <clears throat> uh, basic training was at Fort Jackson, South Carolina okay. in 1989. Then from there, I went straight over to Fort Gordon, Georgia, the Signal Center, and did my communications school. And uh, went to Germany as my first uh, assignment.
1: Okay. We're here to talk about specifically <clears throat> your time in Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, why was the United States in Somalia? There's a lot of people that probably have no idea we were even there.
2: Here we are twenty twenty five years old. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I know. Um, I was there because I was sent there. Obviously, uh, I think what happened was uh, there was a lot of warring going on. The government collapsed, and uh, they had UNICEF feeding, you know, starving peoples in Somalia, and they became they came under attack. Um, by warring factions in Somalia. And I think they called on the UN to assist. And the UN contacted a lot of nations, including the United States, asking for armed assistance. And I believe that's why the United States got involved. Uh, I know that when we we were preparing to go there, they said uh, that we were gonna provide support and, and security for food trucks and food convoys and all that good stuff. So it sounded like a real humanitarian uh, effort uh, going into that. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much what they told us, and that's right. what I understand. Yeah.
1: What unit were you with over there?
2: I was with the 546 Personnel Service Company out of Fort Hood, Texas. It was a personnel company that did dog tags, ID cards, and death certificates and death uh, preparation mm-hmm. like in combat. And I was a communications person for that unit. So I provided communications for vehicles and uh, our land assets as well.
1: Where specifically were you in Somalia?
2: We were in Mogadishu in the the capital. And we were actually set up originally at the uh, site of the U.S. Embassy. And then we moved over to the uh, university complex where we took up residence there and set up camp there. And that was January of 1993. How long were you there? <laughs> I think I was there until mm-hmm. May
1: 1993. And, uh, yeah. What are your impressions when you get there?
2: First impression was switching bait. Felt kind of like, hmm. Yeah. Didn't seem like what they advertised. Right. Uh, They told us, oh, you're going to, you know, provide security on food convoys and help carry rice bags and this and that. Well, we landed on a commercial aircraft in Mogadishu Airport, and they told us there was a sniper in the area and that we had to disembark the aircraft one at a time down the ramp. And we got down to the ramp, and they put us in some sort of bunker, and they gave us flak vests and they, our initial issue of ammunition, and we're sitting on the floor tearing open cardboard boxes, loading ammo into our magazines and sweating in the heat in January because we're used to the cold. Right. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? This is, doesn't seem exactly what they said was going to happen. This was, you know, kind of surreal, right. you know. So and we loaded all of our bags on our deuce and a half and they said they're going to take us to the embassy complex and the lookout for open windows or snipers in the area a bunch of people were killed and shot and all this stuff and i thought they didn't tell us any, anything about this we thought this thing was just kind of laid back and it's going to be an easy ride you know right. so kind of got intense really quick you know yeah yeah
1: so what are your daily duties what i mean what was a typical day like for you in somalia
2: so as the communication team it was just myself and my NCO and he was my supervisor. And the two of us went there and we were to provide communications for our sleep and work areas and vehicles. And we established that immediately. Um, we, we put the radios in the Humvees. We ran TA312s, for those of you that don't know, those are the little crank phones mm-hmm. with the 2D batteries in it, which I think is obsolete now. Uh, so we did that and I think just maintaining communications was my primar- primary job there. And uh, vehicles would run the wires over because we couldn't really bury them because the ground was so hard. And was, a lot of times we just kind of piled rocks on top of the cables, mm-hmm. the, the wires. And uh, I was constantly splicing wire. It seemed like the whole time I was there, whether it was night, day, right. you know, those wires were always breaking. But when I wasn't busy doing that, um, I would provide security on, on convoys, on r- rides where you have the, I think we call it air guard where you had the, you're on top of the roof, you know, providing security. Yeah. So I found myself doing that quite a bit, um, in the city there. And, uh, yeah. So that was pretty much the job.
1: Right. Is there any incidents, uh, or days that, that stand out more than others? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um. I had to pin everything down. I would say, two incidents. Um, one was an incident where we were under fire and attacked in the evening. Um, we were sitting around getting ready to go to bed. I think I had flip flops and, sh- and shorts on and dog tags, and we were just kind of chit chatting. And then all of a sudden, it was like utter chaos. People were running into buildings, you know, tripping over people, falling everywhere, coming through windows. And then all of a sudden you can hear gunfire and everything. And so we were being attacked. And, uh, I mean, I, vividly I remember somebody saying, turn all the lights off. And everyone was trying to turn all the lights off until I actually saw a guy physically grab a light bulb and squeeze it and just pop it in his hand. As That really stood out. Um, we were attacked for about 45 minutes. And uh, I, just, I just remember laying on the ground trying to load my... My M2... Uh, <laughs> help me out here. Uh, M240. Was that the grenade launcher? 240? 240. Yeah. Getting old. Uh, I remember trying to load that first round in there. And uh, vividly at the airport, when we first got there, somebody told us, you know, provided a little wisdom to us and said, don't put oil in your weapon because the sand will stick to it. Oh, that sounded like pretty sound sound advice but then the thing gets dusty gets sand in it it has no lubrication well i found out that evening when i couldn't get a round loaded into my when we were under attack and i had rounds all over the ground dented trying to get that first round in. i couldn't get it in finally got it in and after that attack i remember sitting up at night staying up at night just cleaning my gun and oiling it and and, uh, making sure it was going to function properly and i think from that day on I oiled and kept it lubricated. It just kept rags up in the magazine well to keep dust out and everything. But that, that was that was a big one. And then the other one was we went to the airport. We went from the university complex to the Mogadishu Airport to deliver some paperwork or something like that. And it was in the evening. I think somebody had passed away. And I say passed away because I think they had a vehicle accident and, and died or something. So, uh we went there, and I know that we weren't supposed to leave or be out on the road in the evening, so it was a bit unnerving that we had to get out there as the sun was going down. And I remember getting to the airport, and it, the sun was it was getting late, and we were heading back. And, you know, we were supposed to make a left at a burned-out vehicle. Well, from the time we left to the time we got to the airport, someone had moved that vehicle <laughs> Because we just kept on driving right. and driving and driving in the city, and we didn't see the burned-out vehicle, so we got lost in the city, and we pulled over, trying to, you know, pawn over mm-hmm. this old map that we had, and man, it was just nerve-wracking to look up at all these windows, people looking at you, and just thinking, anytime now, you know, not in you know, in Maryland, sitting at a gas station, trying to figure out where you are, you know, right. it was pretty pretty nerve-wracking. That that really bothered me, thinking that. The decision of one person to, or one person's decision to get you lost, even though that technically wasn't your fault. But it, right. I think at that point I realized that one person's decision could actually make an effect and kill yeah. other people in your unit, and it really bothered me. Um, and I, there was one other incident uh, where we were heading down the road, and I was on the top of the vehicle as air guard and someone hit me on a leg and said the guy in the blue shirt up ahead had a gun and I, at that time no one in the city no civilians in the city were supposed to have any sort of firearms well this guy was wearing a blue one of those untucked sh- blue shirts like you see barbers wear mm-hmm. <laughs> and sure enough he was looking at me and he had his hand behind his back but I saw that he had a revolver in his hand and he was smiling away and just like nothing was going on and someone tapped me you know hey, he's got the gun or whatever and I was just Okay, so I was lock and loaded at this guy, and I was pointing it at him, and I put it into, you know, select to semi-automatic, and I just thought, man, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, you know, and I just thought, I was scared, like, and I didn't want him to pull it out, and I was just really nerved, and then, then I heard someone say, just go, 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 so we just left, and I was still facing in the rear at him, just in case, and my fear turned to anger, and my emotions just totally changed, it was really bizarre, um, sensation, and then at that point, I wanted him to pull it out because I wanted just to release my stress, and I just wanted him to do it. And it was just so unnatural to feel that way, and it was really bizarre. So that was that was one thing that really stuck out.
1: Yeah. What, what's the trepidation come from? Because there's no chance he's he's going to succeed with a revolver against against you guys. With it you didn't want to have to shoot the guy, or can, can you pinpoint what? <laughs>
2: Well, at first, of course, I didn't want to get into that. I mean, I was this kid, you know, three years earlier skateboarding in my neighborhood in suburban Virginia, you know, and uh, here I am faced with some guy and a gun, you know, like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a radio communications guy, like, when I'm, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a deal with this stuff, you know, this kind of thing. And and I was faced with that quite a few times, where they told us uh, some kids from Clans would. Could possibly come up to you and stab you randomly because uh, it was some sort of tribal thing if they had blood on their knife they could be from a, a rivaling tr- clan that they right. would become a man, and we were fair game for that because we were a rivaling you know right. entity to them and of course, every time I saw you know one time I saw these teenagers coming up to the vehicle and I was sitting in the humvee and I had to take my knife out mm-hmm. and I put it in my lap, and I just thought. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to, I don't want to be in this situation. Who wants to get in a knife fight? I mean, I'm a nice kid, you know, yeah. like I want to do this. And sure enough, they just kind of talked a little and walked off and that, you know, and that was it. But you know, you get all worked up about that. I think that was probably the worst thing was just the kind of pent up stuff that never kind of, it's like, like a pressure tank and you just very, in a slow leak at the end, just right. to kind of release that pressure, you know? But, uh, it was interesting. I mean, you see, saw a lot of really bad things, you know. You know especially, I'm sorry, I'm kind of no. going. But uh, seeing the l- little kids hurt over there was pretty bad too. Saw so, I didn't see any dead children, but I did see some wounded children missing legs and limbs. Um, and and uh, we used to kind of go to the hospital because we shared a compound with the Swedish hospital. And it was kind of tough seeing these kids, you know, like that. And uh, I saw a kid. Uh, hit another kid with a rock one time because I threw some peanut butter packets that I found in the garbage. Yes. And I thought, these kids are starving. So I threw the peanut butter packets over the fence. Right. And then they started fighting and hitting each other with rocks and it was really yeah. unnerving, you know. And uh, I saw these MPs throw a chem light stick over the fence as well. And I saw a grown man stab another guy to get it. They didn't know what it was, you know. It was really, you know... Yeah,
1: a different world
2: from. It is like, a different the world, world. You absolutely, and I, you know, I would have to absolutely say that it changed me as a person seeing that kind of stuff, you know. Oh. Yeah.
1: What's the tempo like? Where there? Is it every day you're out doing something, or is there any downtime at
2: all? <clears throat> oh, there was downtime. That's for sure. I spent a lot of time in the Swedish hospital sunbathing on the roof. Right. Uh, <laughs> Pilfering for alcohol (laughs) with some of the other countries that were there. I got wine from the French army, uh, beer from the Canadians. I mean, I got a bottle of papaya wine, traded a flashlight for that. I mean, you know, you had to get by. And I think I learned a lot of that from my grandfather in World War II, you know, getting fresh eggs and wine and champagne going through Germany in the American army. Uh, I brought a stove and, and pots and like, pasta and i was cooking food and i became like a little group of people that we used to try to cook and make stuff and scrounge little bits of food and stuff and, yeah. and enjoy ourselves so there was some downtime yeah and some enjoyment and i still have friends that i keep in touch with today um from the american army and the swedish army in the yep. camp my son's godfather's swedish soldier that was there and he was best man at my wedding so
1: yeah to those relationships last lifetime.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: The, what kind of reaction did the people there, not the people that want to kill you, but the, the, the average Joe, if there even is such a thing in Somalia, have towards <clears throat> the, the, the troops that were there?
2: It seemed like some of the people were really happy that we were there. I mean, but then again, I, you don't know if that's just because they're opportunists and just happy that we're there to provide for them as well. I mean, maybe that's part of that. But, uh, I think the the average person was happy to see us at least at face value. <laughs> but right. in the evening, it's another story, you know. So, and it's a mixture of desperation and and everything else. I mean, they, they try to sneak into our compound in the evening only to get shot trying to get stuff. and You know, it's all sorts of stuff like that. So, you really don't know who's your friend or your enemy. And, you know, they all kind of, everybody dressed the same, you know, like, they're wearing civilian clothes. You don't know who they are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The famous incident from that time is the Black Hawk Down incident everybody talks about the Battle of Mogadishu. Were you there for that or that after you?
2: <clears throat> the Black Hawk Down incident happened in October, so I remember watching that on, on TV when I got yeah. home. The Battle of Mogadishu, I, don't, I think I may have been there during that because I know there was something going on, some sort of, traffic circle k fight or something and i don't know if that's the same thing so what
1: is it like watching that occur that the, the black hawk Downs? you've been there you know what it's like and now you're watching this on tv on pole.
2: yeah i mean that and watching the movie black hawk down it was pretty realistic and uh nerve-wracking as well watching I, I think i went to the cinema with my mother to see that and i was just on the edge of my seat just thinking wow this is pretty real a pretty bad situation for those poor guys. Um, But, yeah, you know,
1: it's interesting. How old were you when you were in
2: 23.
1: Looking back on it, how does that affect your life?
2: Well, it's affected significantly, I would imagine. Um, I I would say it's it's made me more desensitized to things, harsh things nowadays, violence, and all sorts of stuff. In a way, it kind of helps... You know, I'm, I'm the security, uh, lead at our church and we have like armed security at our church. And I think I told our pastor that, you know, I'm already damaged goods. Let the rest of the people enjoy their time and I'll, you know, secure the flock, you know, in a sense. And, uh, cause I'm a bit sensitized to that kind of thing anyways, you know? And, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, absolutely, you know? And I, I still have problems with, you know, sleep and dreams and that kind of thing. Not all the time, but occasionally and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Were you a spiritual guide before you went there?
2: I wouldn't say that it did anything to change me. I mean, if I'm being honest, you know, I would say I'm probably even killed the same. I think it's just my outlook on just life in general and just everything else has maybe changed a bit. But spiritually, I would say everything's about the same.
1: Yeah. Our mission is to preserve stories like yourself for fifteen hundred years down the road. Some kid might watch this video.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We'd like to tell them about your service. I'd
2: probably say that I'm really happy that I did it, and that I'm honored and like proud that I did what I did for my country. And it, and that's another thing is that. And I hate to say that that this is over the religion because everybody's different, but I would say it made me more proud of my country and to be there representing my country. And the flag has a totally different meaning now, and it's more intense and more personal and everything. And and some people can't understand that, but some people can. But sometimes it takes a, a situation like that to make you actually feel that and understand that, and everybody's different, you know.
1: Some kid watching this on the fence, whether they want to serve or not, what advice would you give them?
2: I would say try to pick, if you really die hard and want to join the military, pick the service that you think would suit you best currently and when you get out as well. And I'm not going to endorse one or the other, but just be smart and be, you know, informed on what you're doing. And, uh, follow your heart like if you know you want to serve your country it's a great feeling you know so and I'm happy and proud that I did that so,
1: so you recommend military service
2: I do for the person that is in that situation yeah. that wants to do that absolutely yeah
1: well, on behalf of the Americans of Wartime Museum thank you for sitting down and talking to us Tell thank you your much. more importantly thank you for your service I appreciate,
2: really it. appreciate it thank you very much
0: I hope you enjoyed this interview If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.